A uh, couple of, well, one quick thing I want to just share with you. Um, an update. Last week we took up our first fruits offering and we also, uh, little children have been dro- dropping off money for the last few weeks and months. And so uh, it was kind of interesting to watch Ryan, Vincent, and I try to get those huge tubs, which neither of us could lift, uh, to the bank. And so uh, just if we, we don't have it on video, but it was hilarious and nobody got hurt. So we were proud of that. Um, but our children gave uh, $1,902.22. <laughs> um, and a, a moment of clarification, Ella Moss was not happy about the offering last week. And the reason why she wasn't happy was not that she didn't mind giving, but she didn't want the boys to win. And the boys smoked the girls for whatever that, we would not need to have that with today's text. But the boys won, uh, I won't even say what it is, but uh, the boys gave a little bit more than the girls did, um, but they were all gave to Jesus. So that's pretty cool. Um, As you know, our overall need for the entire uh, building in terms of what our ultimate plans are, Uh, sit around right around the five million dollar mark and uh, the first major phase is the new children's area a lobby restructuring and then getting this uh, area here kind of up to speed as the the carpet and the pews need some need some work on them Um, and so we are right now at the 3.75 ish number and uh, we're really excited about that. When I was talking to Richard, who's kind of guiding us through this whole process, and I asked him, what could we expect on the first fruits offering? He said, well, usually around 10, 15%. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, okay, that's great. And so when we saw the response of Sunnybrook, we were really, really excited about that. Um, you know, it's one of those awkward moments, do we clap or not clap? I have no idea. I feel weird if we do or if we don't. So it really doesn't matter. But if we were to clap in honor of this, or if we don't clap in honor of this, Here's what we're hopefully feeling either way is um, thank God. Thank God for his kindness. Thank God for his provision. Um, Andrea and I, okay, yeah, yeah, thank him for that. You know, I'm just, I'm just reminded, Andrea and I recently have gone through a change in terms of our houses. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but recently we bought new windows to go into our remodel and didn't really think anything of it. Kind of thought we need new windows because the old ones are broken. And so we bought some new windows, and it was just kind of the natural thing to do. And so that's kind of how we look at this. What are some natural things that we need uh, just to make sure that future generations have a place where they can come? How many of you are grateful for what we have? I mean, really. And so somebody gave to that, and so we're really looking forward to just passing it forward. So that's what all of this is about. But let's make sure that we're clear. This here, right, is a tool. And if we don't get the text right, meaning this complicated one. Have you heard that I'm going to be teaching a complicated text? If we don't get that right, then this means nothing. Actually, this can be detrimental. Funding something that creates a context for children and families to hear the word wrongly preached is dangerous, right? He has eternal implications. But creating a place where they are properly taught is a joy. And so let's always remember what serves what. Okay, let's make sure that we do that. Let's start with our, that was, you're welcome. Let's start with our bumper and then we'll jump into our text for this morning. In chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul addressed the issue of idol worship and specifically whether or not a Christian can eat food that has been sacrificed to an idol. His answer is that it's perfectly fine because the gods those idols represent don't actually exist. But just because we have the right to do something doesn't always mean we should. Our biggest concern, Paul says, should be the building up of the body. And if eating food sacrificed to idols causes a brother or sister to stumble, we should lay down that right. Now, in chapter 11, Paul will turn the page and begin addressing issues relating to proper Christian worship. But while his topic may have changed, his underlying motivation has not. All of Paul's instructions in the next several chapters will be rooted in this idea, that the worship gathering is not meant for individual fulfillment, but for the building up of the entire body. So our gathering together, um, not just on Sunday, but our coming together, is intended for the building up of the body which then brings glory and honor to God. And I think sometimes we can be deceived 
into believing when we have, careful with my wording, when we have performers. I mean that nicely. It can seem like a performance. And when we have observers watching performers, it can seem really passive. And in that passive context, you and I can be deceived into believing that what is going on in this room or what's going on in my heart or what's going on in my mind is, is kind of all that matters. That sounds way more, maybe even thought out because many of you just woke up and said, ah, let's go to church. I don't know how many of you kind of thought, wow, so we are going to worship God and may he be praised and may he receive honor, not shame, from the way that I dress, from the way that I live my life from the way that I respond in my marriage. May God be praised. May God receive honor. We, we don't live in an honor-shame society, and a lot of us go, oh, man, I'm so glad we don't. Um, and it is what it is. You and I um, are now reduced to living in a society that is based upon internal convictions, you feel bad for what you did, you should feel bad for what you did. I don't feel bad for what I did. Oh, okay, well then you can do that. You feel bad for what you did? No, I don't feel bad for what I did. Not whether or not what we did was bad. But do you feel bad for what you did? No, I don't feel bad for what I did. That's our culture, by the way. It's all about self-understanding, self-actualization, self-fulfillment. The world that Paul grew up in was honor, shame. That when a son acts a certain way that brings shame upon his family, then the family feels tremendous amounts of shame. And we go, man, I'm so glad we don't have to live in that crazy society. We get to live in our normal, well-adjusted world. Did you see the level of brokenness that exists? So it Honestly, it's a little bit of a, not even choose your problem because I didn't choose to live in a conviction-based, guilt-based instead of honor-shame society. But just for, so you know, the majority of the world doesn't live like us. And I don't just mean in terms of drive nice cars and live in nice houses. I mean, they just don't look at the world the way the same way. And Paul, when he is speaking to the Corinthian people, um, knows to say, hey, this is how you should act. And if you don't act this way, it would bring shame and dishonor to God and shame and dishonor to your family. And the audience would go, wow, well, we don't want to do that with us. It's like, well, but are we happy? Like, as I shame my family, am I at least being fulfilled? Like, as I shame my, my, my community, as I shame my God, am I at least self-actualized? So we have to deal with this book in our culture there are changes and there are differences. The majority of the world reads this text different than we do. But we still need to read this text. I, I think it's fair to say that there are times, and I'm not trying to speak for all Christians or all of the church, but I think it's fair to say that sometimes the church gets issues wrong. We have. And I'm not trying to apologize for everyone, but I definitely feel the weight of that as I try to share the gospel with other people and they love to use examples of when the church has gotten it wrong. I, I can't just pretend that's not true. The church has spent a lot of time reading the same book that you and I read and come up with different answers. The church has been, um, and again, both the church and then just individual Christians have been manipulative and exploitive We've looked at the text and we've found reasons to justify our own positions and we have taken advantage of particularly those that are incapable of defending themselves. And in society around the world and throughout history, sadly enough, it usually means women and children. Incapable of defending themselves and so we are now at a time in history um, where more on a global scale, there's a lot of empowerment talk to try to keep ourselves from being exploited any further. And I'd love to say that the church always got it right, but they didn't. The church knew what it was like to be persecuted, and they really took it on the chin for like hundreds of years. 
And then when they finally got power, they acted just like everybody else. To our shame. To God's dishonor. And the church has gotten it wrong throughout history on some pretty important issues. And people have been hurt, and I would argue worse than that, God was shamed. Fact. But if we're going to tell the whole story, not only does the church sometimes get it wrong, but sometimes the church sets things right. I don't just mean get it right. I don't just mean that in the instance when some people were exploiting the poor and the marginalized that there were a few in the church that were getting it right. No, we all know that's the case. Not, nobody, no, no group of people get it all wrong or all right. Yeah, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about there were those that within the church community that decided, no, we're going to help set this right. We've been given a way of living and a way of acting, and it's amazing when you go back and look at history. I would challenge you to look at history more than your Twitter feed. I really would. And try to get a better sense of what's going on historically than what your friend from college tweeted recently. May not have the same kind of historical verification methods that most historians want, but the church was also involved in setting a lot of things right. The great abolitionists like William Wilberforce in England that through the reading of the Bible said, yeah, we can't buy and sell people. Like, we can't do that. Like, that's, un, that's, not, that's not Christ-like. And the early abolitionist movements and much of the proper treatment and the protection of children and women actually was from the church. You might want to say, well, no, that's not the case. But no, history says that is the case. I wish it was just all one way or all the other. Mm. And now we're in a new phase. We're in a new phase where the church has got to wrestle with this text. I've never preached this text before in my life. Never preached it. I wasn't dodging it. I've never preached through 1 Corinthians. So that's one of my reasons why. Second one is, man, this probably should be more of in a class where we can have some dialogue. I really wish it was. I really wish we could just spend five hours discussing this together. And for those that are interested, that you would stay. I'll probably go a few minutes over. Not a lot. I only went eight over for service. But there's a lot to unpack here. But more than there is to unpack, can I just tell you, there's more going on inside of our hearts and minds. So the Bible is going to come to us this morning like it always does. It comes to us a book that is written in time, meaning that it's cultural. The Bible describes cultures and cultural traditions. The Bible tells a story of a man named Judah who meets his daughter-in-law named Tamar, who is appropriately covered because she's trying to seduce her father-in-law. And so she knows, well, if I want to trick my father-in-law into having sex with me so that I might become pregnant, then I must cover my head so that I would look like a prostitute. Okay, what? That's not what I saw in Vegas. Doesn't look like that at all, but that's, that's the culture that exists. And whether you're eating or whether you're dressed for a, a particular assembly, how you build your houses, how you pray, these are all cultural things, and the Bible is full of them, from Genesis to Revelation, culture. It's also got some universal things in it. It's got some things that describe Hey, Judah, what you did with Tamar is a disgrace. And later on, in the book of Leviticus, when it describes what Judah and Tamar did, it called it a disgrace. And then later on, when Jesus and Paul were talking about sexual immorality, they said, that's a disgrace. There are universals that exist throughout the Bible. And I'm glad there are. Because they help us actually see that this book, this wonderful book that you and I are trying to order our lives in, comes with cultural things, how we dress and how we treat one another, and then we say, okay, how do we, how do we live culturally in changing times universally with God's ordained principles? Well, I know. Why don't we just go back to that golden rule, just treat others the way you want to be treated, and just love one another and be nice? 
you, you do realize that that, that, that that sounds easy, but it just it breaks down to more than just that all the way through. That's why Paul doesn't say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, love one another and be nice. End of conversation. No, he gets into the weeds, and we're going in after him. There's two ways to deal with difficult texts. One of them is to handle it this way. Follow the Nike motto. Just do it. Bible says cover your heads. Women, cover your heads. Bible says greet one another with a holy kiss. Start kissing. If the Bible says it, we do it. If the Bible says that we eat and drink, then we eat and drink. If the Bible says we get immersed, we get immersed. If the Bible says we speak in tongues, whoa, 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 whoa. So it's complicated. And when people go, hey, I really think that what we actually need to do is to just do it, can I just tell you that's a very simple way of responding to things? It's very simple. And, and, and sometimes, I, sometimes simple is just wrong. To, to read the text and to just do it, one of the most fascinating books was called The Year of Living Biblically. And in that book, this guy just runs around trying to do everything the way the Bible describes it, and the book is just silly. And interestingly enough, that was his point. It's just silly to read the Bible and to just do it. So can I give you another option? Another option that's really popular today, I would say more popular today than just the just do it. We realize how silly that would be to just do it. So we got a new one. It's called just ignore it. That's the majority of us. We look at a complicated text like 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and it talks about men and women and how they should relate to one another. And we go, that's dumb. I don't like that. So we just ignore it. We, we just decide that in the end, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick the text and I'm going to pick the ideas that I like. And if I don't like them, then I'm just going to not do them. I just want you to think through that. Because the accusation made by those who doubt the Christian faith and how we live our lives, is that we, just like people in the past, whether it's issues of slavery um, or male chauvinism or the exploitation of the poor, they picked and chose, they picked and chose those kinds of texts that supported their agenda and they ignored the rest. And before I just go, yeah, those terrible slave traders. Don't we do that? Don't we look at texts like this and go, oh, that's outdated. I kind of like this, just ignore it. You know, and, and, and why don't we just stick with the, the, the deeper meaning of texts, like love one another, which doesn't really mean anything, right? Because it's just like love one another. Isn't that deep? What am I, I'm, right now I'm just loving. Like how? Any way I want. Do you see the danger of this? So Paul says, yeah, I'm, I'm really not here to, to win friends. I'm really not here to influence people. Not in a worldly way. I'm here to speak the truth with grace. And, and Paul wants us to know that it's more complicated than just doing it. And it's more complicated than just ignoring it. It's constantly working through these texts and other texts and saying, what part of this is a non-negotiable? Whether you like it, whether I like it. I mean, if it, were, if it were up to me, it would have been just as easy to just kind of scratch out 2 through 16. No, 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 I like 2. Sorry, 3. Th no, I like, I like, I don't like 10. I didn't care. Oh, but I like 16. So 3 through 15 minus 8, right? Do you guys, do, you know how I can tell this is how we do it? Is when I love to say, hey, what's your favorite Bible verse? And you tell me, like, why it's your favorite Bible verse. And the answer is, it just really, like, speaks to you. And it gives you, like, this encouragement. Nobody ever picks, well, here's my favorite Bible verse. Because it reminds me of how terrible I am. Here, here's my favorite Bible verse. This Bible verse, I don't get it. And I don't know what to do with it. And so I still have to wrestle with it. And it just reminds me of how small I am and the bigger. I've never had anybody say that to me. And I've never felt that myself. And then I wonder why the Bible doesn't speak with authority into my life. And if I want to be brutally honest with me, i got to admit that I'm the authority. I'm the one that tells the Bible what to do. I'm the one that picks and chooses the text that I want to deal with. And if I don't like it, then I can just appease myself by going, well, the church has got this wrong for a long time. This is one more example of when the church has gotten it wrong. So I just want to know, do we trust this book or not? 
do we go by this? Or, and I know it's complicated. Remember, I, I, we can't just do it and we can't just ignore it. We got to figure out some kind of consistent interpretation and application of the biblical text. And the church, by the way, um, all throughout human history, if I were to tell this sermon, all throughout church's history, they would say, uh-huh, it's hard. Yep, no, we can't do that, we can't do that. Um, this isn't new. But before we unpack the text, can I just ask one last question? Can you guys tell that things are changing in the world? Does anybody know that when it comes to um, gender understanding and interpretation, um, gender identification, sexual ethics. Can anybody tell things are changing or is it just me? Okay. So here's all I want to ask you. If the church has gotten this wrong before, could the church get it wrong again? When the church in the past has decided, hey, I kind of like what everybody else is doing. What are we doing? Um, We're taking our kids and we're just putting them in garbage dumps so the animals eat them. That's what everybody's doing. What's wrong with that? I mean, they're just kids. And the church went, no, 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 we don't, we don't put kids in garbage dumps. Actually, what we do as a church is we go to the garbage dumps and we take, true story, by the way, we take those children out of the garbage dumps and we raise them like they're our own children. So what, what's our plan again? We're going to buy and sell people because they're a lot of money. Um, how about we don't do that? And how about we do what we can to stop that practice? So what's the world doing today? Well, we're trying to dissolve any kind of authority and any kind of distinction between the sexes. That sounds like a good idea. It's real popular. I I just want to ask, is it possible at all that us, you and me, You and me, I'm with you on this one, are sitting in the midst of one more cultural shift and the church, just like in the past, just seems to go, I don't don't want to make waves. Why why don't we just do what everybody else is doing? Why don't we just go along with what culture is going? And, And Paul stands up and he goes, yeah, that's not what we do. We create in our lives And in our marriages, in the place where we do business, and in the place where we do worship, we create an alternative way of living with one another and before God. We recognize that the way that we respond to women and to children, to those that are marginalized, the way that we respond to those that we are in relationship with, husband, wife, child, the way that we are in relation with government, that that will bring glory or shame to our God. Do you believe that? The way that you live your marriage, the way that you respond to your spouse, the way you stay faithful to your covenant vows will bring honor or shame to your God, to this community. Do you believe that? That's what the Bible teaches. And that's why Paul comes and says, I need to tell you some things. First of all, right off the bat, the Apostle Paul says this. I am grateful that you maintain the traditions. Now, if there has ever been a time where that is so not cool, it is today. And the only time where it will be worse than that is probably tomorrow. Maintaining traditions? No, that's how we got into this patriarchal mess. Traditions are the problem. Buck the system. Rage against the machine. That's the problem. Traditions. I'm just asking you, the more that we rage, okay, the more that we rage, any any of you finding that in society we're not finding, like, utopian peace? Anybody else kind of recognizing that the more that we all decide to rage and share our rage, we all do this wonderful virtue signaling on our Twitter accounts, oh, you think you're offended, watch how offended I am. That's nothing. I'm double offended. I'm offended at those people who aren't even offended, And those people who were offended, I'm offended by everybody. This is what's created peace? The Apostle Paul says in verse 2, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. 
Hey, thank you very much for realizing that there is a way. That's, that's the step number one. Even if I don't know the way, even if I don't know it, and even if, if as an eldership we can't know it, even if as a church we don't know it, the one thing I cannot escape is there must be a way. The Bible describes not that there are many ways to God, not that there are many ways to live, but in fact that there is fundamentally a universal way in which we live, a universal way in which we honor God. I can't, well, I honor God by cheating on my wife. Well, I honor God by being faithful. Isn't God diverse? I honor God by exploiting people. I honor God by honoring people. Isn't God fascinating? No, that's just a contradiction. Paul says, thank you for maintaining the traditions that I delivered to you. Verse three, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Shockwaves through the Roman world. No, 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 no. The head of every man is the emperor. And the head of the emperor are the gods. But if you want to understand how this works, emperors rule over and the Christian community says, no, 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 I'll be respectful of the king, but in the end, I have one Lord, I have one Messiah, and his name is Jesus. I'll give respect where respect is due. I'll pay taxes where taxes are due. But in the end, I answer to no one other than God himself and his Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. So this is already sending shockwaves through the, church, the Christian community and the surrounding community. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, ordinarily, when we look at this text, we go, okay, God, and he's the head of Christ. Well, that's kind of weird because I thought they were the same. But Jesus said that I hear and I obey everything the Father says, everything the Father does that I do. He also says, I want you, when Jesus prays, I want, he says about us, I want you to be one like we are one. How, how do you have a head or an authority and be one? It's interesting. Paul says, well, you know, it's kind of like marriage. Ephesians 5. Well, that's not like marriage. No, Paul says it is. Read it. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, down through the end. What does he say? There is a oneness that exists in marriage, and there is a distinction that exists. I hate distinctions. See, that's where we get with, like, I'm better and you're worse. You, you do know that that whole better and worse, superior and inferior that kind of develops when broken people care more about themselves than others. It begins in the fall. If you go back and read the stories in Genesis 3, the greatest depiction that comes out of the fall with Adam and Eve rebelling because this angel came down and told them, don't follow the structures the way God ordained. So Eve rebelled and Adam rebelled. And then God judged because of that one angel. Remember, Satan, the accuser, messed everything up by people saying, who are we to listen to someone? We are free to decide for ourselves. And they became slaves to their sin. And what the apostle Paul is saying, that there is an order, that God is the head of Christ. And Christ doesn't seem to mind. That Christ is the head of man. Oh, you mean humans, all of us? Sure. But then he goes on to say, and this is where it gets a little bit complicated. Mm -hmm. And man is the head of woman. Now, for the record, you're going to see me moving back and forth between husband and wife and man or woman. They're all the same Greek words. There's one word, Greek word, for man and husband, andere. And there's one word for wife and woman, and it's gene. And so the interpreters of the text, our ESV translators, have tried to do the best. The only way to know whether or not they're talking about husbands and wives and men and women is by the context. And I think the text does a pretty good job, but it's not as simple as, well, it says husbands, it says wives. No, actually, that's our best way to try to understand it. But if this is your first time at church today, you picked a doozy of a day to show up. Or maybe you picked the right day to show up because we're going to help you understand that, A, we don't know everything. But B, we're willing to work with the complexities of this text, even if we don't like it. Because you didn't come to a church where, like, Jim is the king, or the elders are the kings. Um, Jesus is the king. And I'm going to have to deal with this text whether I like it or not. 
I'm going to have to take this text. I mean, it'd be a whole lot easier if he just said, hey, and by the way, the head of every man is Christ, and men and women are equal, and they coexist, and they're equal, and they share everything. That would have been a whole lot easier. But no, it actually tells me this right here. And then Paul says, I want you to maintain the traditions. Now here, if you go maintain the traditions, seriously, Archie Bunker again? Anybody know, how many of you guys know who even Archie Bunker is? Okay. Ed Bundy? Anybody else know who that idiot is? Okay. So sadly enough, Bill Cosby, yeah, that one's not as popular anymore, Cosby Show. Right? I want you to think about this. The majority of us, how about those really socially adept people on, on Friends? You guys ever watch Friends? They get it, don't they? Man, if you ever talk about well-adjusted individuals, they're very well-adjusted. Oh, I know what. Let's watch The Office and see how marriage should be and interaction should be. Where do you want to go? I would even argue that the majority of our way of looking at even marriage is shaped far more by television than it is by the Bible. So if you're looking to those on television and those in movies as the examples of romance and what it should actually look like, well, then no wonder you're afraid and you're going to assert your own independence and you're going to assert your own authority because in the end, I don't want anybody to take advantage of me. But Paul says, there are traditions that I want you to follow and there are things that God has ordained. Well, I just don't want anybody to take advantage of me. See, that's what I love is I love reality because for the last... 150-ish years, we've been working on creating a context where men and women are equal and where people can assert and do what they want. And here's what I love. After 150 years of working, we have finally created a place where women are no longer exploited, where there's no need for a Me Too movement. Did we do that? Oh, yeah, but that's the church. No, it's not the church. That's actually like Hollywood. Huh. No, but they, they, be, huh, they believe. They say that everything is the same, and, and yet they couldn't stop exploitation. You thought about that? And men and women and children continue to be abused. I hope you know, like, our freedom does not come from our cultural understanding or this new this new um, eureka moment about the sexes or about our genders. Are you kidding me? Only through the gospel of Jesus Christ will we ever learn to not exploit and to not manipulate because we have a deeper understanding of our own brokenness and God's plan of redemption. Only then do I understand what it actually means to love my wife like Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. So I can't sit in my chair and act like an Archie Bunker because that's not what Jesus would ever do. So it's not about chauvinism or feminism. It's about a rightly centered understanding that God is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of man and man is the head of woman. And even when I say that, I, I can't escape in my own mind because of my cultural training, superior and inferior and better than and not and boss and servant and slave. And, and I have to wonder, where did I get all those categories from? And the answer is an incredibly broken system. What if our answer to this text is finally being the kind of church that acknowledges the reality of this, but does it in a fundamentally different way where we understand that each of us are made in the image of God and for the glory of God, and yet each of us has this God-ordained plan of protection and peace. Verse 4, Paul says everything comes from God. This is kind of the meaty part of it, and I'm going to tell you right now, parts of this are cultural and parts of this are universal. So it's not like this whole text is just all universal. No, it seems like there is an undergirding universal idea. Paul ties it into the created order. That's not a universal idea, or that's not a cultural idea. The, the way that God made everything, that's kind of like a, that's the way he made the ground. It's like the reason why scientists can do science is because they know how it's going to work. Gravity is gravity no matter where you are. Unless you're on the moon. Gravity is different, but it's still gravity. But you know what I mean. Look at verse 4. 
every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, which is kind of a bit of a shock because in a lot of cultures, particularly in Jewish culture, you cover your head as a sign of submission. Paul says, no, take that off. Paul's already confronting culture. Take it off. You don't, men, you don't need to have a head cover because Jesus is your head. So that's the reminder there. But every wife who prays or prophesies, notice who's praying or prophesying? The answer is yes. Just for the point reference. Who's praying and prophesying? Husbands. Who else? Wives. Okay. When a wife prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven, you would shave like women, particularly when they were being sold into slavery. You would shave their head as a sign of shame to them. The Apostle Paul goes on to say, For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgrace for a wife to cut her hair short or to shave her head, let her cover her head. There's some cultural stuff in there. So you tell, what's the proper hair length? Yeah, that's cultural. Is this too short? Is this too short? Is this too long? Is this too long? First of all, let me just point out to you. So you're telling me our women have to have their head covered? Well, first of all, you know that the word veil is never found in the text. You know what most likely it means when you understand this culturally? That women, in, the, in that first century, particularly in Corinth, they would take their hair, some would, and they would wrap it up and put like a, a bun on top of their head. As a sign of orderliness and as a sign of remembering kind of how all of society fits together. And then there were those, culturally speaking, that were involved in temple rituals, cultic prostitutes and prostitutes that instead would just let their hair go. Kind of that Farrah Fawcett look without any kind of keptness. And that was their way of just, I'm woman, hear me roar. Look at me, I've got nothing, I'm ready to, and so Paul says, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. He doesn't say women should cover their heads. Okay, these aren't burkas. This isn't a sign of shame. Paul is saying, this is how I want it to happen. I want there to be an understanding and an assemblance of order. So what that looks like, culturally, I think takes on different forms throughout history. But what it stays universally formed is that we recognize there is a distinction that actually exists between men and women. And, and I think you can get a sense of this, at least I'm keenly aware of it this week. That statement that there is a distinction, a God-ordained distinction between men and women has become increasingly controversial. But can I ask you a question? Just take a look around. Can you guys get a sense that there seems to be men and women? And although there might be some cultural grayness, I'm not denying that. If it was, there was no cultural grayness, then we just go back to a just-do-it mentality. But if there is some kind of instance where we have to work through some things, then I think it's just fair to say that you'll never hear me, you'll never see me preach with lipstick and address. That as we watched people lead worship, both men and women, there is a distinction that exists. That exists. And it's kind of fascinating to me that that becomes increasingly controversial to be said in our culture today. What do you mean a distinction? See, that's where you guys are just kind of old fuddy-duddies. Well, the text has to mean something and the universal thing that this text seems to want to describe is that there are some cultural ways in which it's manifested, and then there are some universal truths. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. And that glory does not mean subservient, does not mean worth nothing, or even worth less. If I were to stand up here with everybody on staff, how many of you would say, yeah, the guy in the middle with the orange shirt, that guy is worth more than anybody else? If I were to stand here with my wife, how many of you would go, oh man, Jim is worth so much more than her. He's smarter than her. He's none of those things. If I were to stand up here with my sons. See, do you recognize that as a church we have an opportunity to show distinction without ever belittling? Without ever claiming superiority? But show just genuine love and care and concern appropriately as God has ordained? You're telling me the only way that we can ever find peace is by trying to dissolve all the distinctives that exist between us? That never works. 
And Paul is drawing attention to this. Paul goes on to say, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Now, what does that mean? Just when you think like this, it doesn't make any sense, he throws in, well, because of the angels. Okay, thank you for completely confusing me. There's a couple of options on this. A, one option is we don't know what he means. That they understood in their context, but we don't have that part of the conversation. A bigger thing would be that what's actually happening in this part of the text is that the Apostle Paul is describing the kind of, remember when the angel came and subverted Eve to Adam and then Adam to God? That was an angel that did that. Angels both rebel against authority and then sit in authority. And when you and I demonstrate an obedience to God and a trust of God, even in the midst of brokenness, we are not the only beings in the universe paying attention. Just like when you do something that is inappropriate and you bring shame on your company and you bring shame on your family, you bring shame on your marriage, there's a lot of people paying attention. And what Paul may be alluding to here, I think this is the best explanation, is that there is something profoundly happening even in what Paul refers to as the heavenlies when you and I live right with one another. Notice how he continues. Nevertheless, the Lord, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And the assumed here would be, well, no. Does, it, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Applied answer, well, yeah. But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? Well, of course. That's all the assumed answers here. Paul says, for her hair is given to her for her covering. So in the midst of all of this cultural stuff, the Apostle Paul is saying, but yet there is an appropriate awareness, an appropriate universal distinction that needs to exist. So what you and I have to do is try to figure out what's going on in our world. Now, I want you to repeat after me. I had first service do this as well. I want you to repeat after me. Jim, we know that you are not speaking about every possible situation. Jim, I want you to know my circumstances are different than everyone else around me. I know. Like, I get it. Hear me. I'm, I'm trying to wrap up. I'm almost done. Give me a few more minutes. But I get that it's more. But tell me that we're not just going to jettison this section. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> can, can I tell you a, a problem? And I mean it. Happy Father's Day. I'll kind of come back to this. I know a lot of men right now that are going, man, I so wish that this was just this 50-50 thing because, man, I don't want the responsibility of that. There's a lot of men that are deciding, like, I'd rather be like the fun uncle in the family. I've had two men say that to me. I'm tired of the responsibility in my, in my marriage and with my kids. One of my closest friends, Jen, June 1st, their divorce went through. I want to be the fun uncle. So by the way, he loves the idea of this 50-50 thing. And the only people that are going to pay the repercussions for that is just his wife and him and his children and their family and then future generations. They're the only ones that are going to have to pay the penalty for that. Oh, liberation. Isn't it awesome? So it's not just, it's not just men going, I love being the boss. No, there's a lot of men like in this room going, I don't want to be the boss. Why don't we just all recognize that there isn't a boss? How's that? That's easy for you, isn't it? You don't have the responsibility of providing for or protecting your family. You don't have the responsibility of staying faithful to your covenant. You don't have any of that. It's not biblical. It, it, it takes what the Bible intended and it absolutely destroys it. 
And instead, what the Bible is describing, not that you can be Archie Bunker and sit in the chair and wiggle your glass when it is ice in it and she has to come fill it. It doesn't even mean you're the boss. It just, it means you're the husband and you're the father. Happy Father's Day. And that comes with responsibilities. And by the way, you don't have to do it perfectly. So then what does it look like? Well, I mean, in, in the end, there is a responsibility that comes down to you, just like in the same sense that in all and every analogy breaks down, but there, it comes down to like, who is the one that's going to face the ultimate responsibility of making sure this happens? So you know, when we do like the It's Time campaign, then you're the one that decided, hey, Andrea, here's how much we're giving to the campaign because I'm the man. That's not what we did at all. But it is my responsibility to make sure things happen. And when they don't, it's Andrea's responsibility to kind of fill in the gap where I have failed. Do you see how complicated it can be? It doesn't mean I decide wherever we're going to go. Andrew and I get into these fights all the time. Just yesterday, we had to celebrate Father's Day a day early. And this is what it looked like. Hey, where do you want to go for supper? I don't care. Where do you want to go? Well, no, I need you to pick. You're the father. It's for Father's Day. Well, I don't want to pick. I don't want to, why do I have to pick somewhere? Why are you making this so hard? Well, what do you want for dessert? I don't care. I don't try to not be fat. I don't even want to eat dessert. What do you want? And Andrea is saying to me over and over again, pick a place. No, no, no. This is a 50-50 relationship. And so I'm so free to not, I don't want to be domineering at all. I don't want to be patriarchal in our home. So I really want to just, will you pick a place? It's Father's Day. And many of us as men, hear me, live like that on substantive matters. Where are we going to church this morning? Are we going to church this morning? How much are we going to give to the campaign? You know, a lot of people just avoided that whole thing by just not dealing with it. Just, there will be a responsibility on that. How are we going to raise the kids? There is going to be a responsibility on that. Now, what I love is that the majority of instances that Andrea and I get to work through, it, it just seems like this wonderful oneness doesn't it, babe? Tell me yes. She smiled, okay? So that is a number of instances in which that works. But if not, I can't just go, well, I don't want to deal with this. God's going to go, no, I want to talk to you about this. And you might call that, whatever you want to call it, it tell me this, it just seems to be what Paul is saying. Paul ends with this statement, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. If anybody wants to argue about this, Paul goes, we just don't have any other way of doing it. We recognize, I think Paul would say, we recognize that there are some cultural differences, and then we also recognize there are some universal truths. Universal truths, there is a distinction, and there is an order. There is a responsibility that falls. And so much in our culture is trying to avoid that by playing the 50-50 game which I always want to come back and ask you this question. Tell me one organization that works 50-50. The United States government? Oklahoma State University? Oklahoma State Cowboy football team? Where does that work? Your job? Maybe God has something here. Maybe he's wired us in a particular way. And then maybe he's rewired us in Jesus so that we have this loving, caring my job is to not tell Andrea what to do. My job is to love her like Christ loved the church. Final thought. There also is a, a problem that we're continually seeing is that a lot of women are saying, man, I wish my husband would lead more at home. And by that, a lot of women basically mean I want them to like pray with me and read the Bible occasionally. Maybe become more involved in church. But then when the men begin to step up and lead... And they begin to offer some kind of um, critique or accountability. Hey, I, don't, I don't need you telling me what I should be doing. I don't need you telling me what. And we're seeing this increasingly. As men decide that they want to step up and lead. And women are going, no, no, no. I want you to pray and I want you to read the Bible to me. But in the end, I'm still my own independent operated franchise. And both... A man who's abdicating or a man who's domineering or a woman who is not listening or a wife that decides she wants to do it her own way, like all of this is broken. And the answer is found in here. 
honoring, loving. And actually, here's the way I want it to make sure that we kind of resonate with. Um, um, Jeff and Stacy, would you do me a favor? Would you stand? Because you're going to go, well, what does it look like? Everybody, I want more application. Um, what I'm describing, it looks like that. Uh, Kyle and Natalie, would you stand up for me? Yeah, I know, you had no idea. Stand up, right now, stand up. I don't have a lot of time, we're late. <laughs> looks like that. Mark and Nicole, will you stand up? By the way, I'm not, I'm not picking it. If you're sitting down, I'm not saying you're a loser, I promise you. <laughs> Joe and Shauna, stand up, please. See, this, this is what I love, is like it, it can look like this. And so if you don't know what it's going to look like, I'm not just saying guess or figure it out. The best advice I ever give young couples that are about to get married is you need to surround yourselves with couples like this, different ages, different personalities. Each of you look at me, and I look at you, and I go, wow, that was a, that's a strong, strong woman. That is a very loving, caring, strong man. And see, these become the examples that you and I model, not culture. And so especially if you are a young man or a young woman trying to figure out what to do with this text, don't take my word for it. Seek out wise men and women like this and ask them how they do it. Andrew and I would love to have marriages like this. You can be seated. But just tell me we're not gonna jettison this text. Tell me we're going to work hard to figure out what it looks like and tell me we're going to offer the culture around us an alternative to the mess that exists and may they find in us hope in Jesus. That's why we need this when we deal with difficult texts like this. Let's pray. God, thank you for your truth that comes unfiltered. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On the way out, guys, um, take a look at the wonderful uh, Youthquake opportunity to give so that other people can go to Youthquake. Um, We'd love to continue this faith conversation. I know there's more that could be said, but we got to eat lunch. Happy Father's Day.